You're listening to 2, 5, and 10, your source for bullshit-free NHL news, analysis, and insights. Now, here are your hosts, Kevin Naughton and Ben Stewart. Up in horsey heaven, here's a thing. You trade your legs for angels' wings. Once we've all said goodbye You take a running leap and you learn to fly Bye, bye, little Sebastian Miss Hello everybody and sand. welcome to episode 60 of 2, 5, and 10 Benny, I never thought we'd make it to episode 60 So I- I'm feeling pretty good about this, what up? We'll see if we make it to 61. Um, it's been a long week. you know. I we almost ep- didn't make it here. I know. Uh, we'll see what happens. Um, I just know that this episode is probably going to be the longest amount of time we'll spend talking about non-hockey-related things in terms of off-the-ice stuff, including the off-season. Uh, so we'll see if we get into any trouble. God, I hope not. I mean, this is a family-friendly podcast, minus a few F-bombs here and there. But uh, where do you want to go this week? Where do you want to start? Let's we gotta go to Calgary, uh, and then eventually to Chicago with the whole Bill Peters thing, uh, with Akeem Alou and the Mark Crawford with several other allegations, um, with regards to kind of off the ice behavioral issues. Uh, so I think we should start there. Let's start in Calgary with Peters. All right, lay it on it for him. I'm sure everyone's already heard by now, but I mean you're our professional reader. I'm just kind of the, the other guy. <laughs> I'll do a Cliff Notes version. Uh, Bill Peters coached the Calgary Flames. Uh, he got a start. Well, one of his first professional coaching gigs was in the Chicago Blackhawks organization in the AHL. Uh, at the time, he was coaching a former second-round pick, Akeem Alou, uh, who's African-American. Well, not African-American. He's black. Uh, he's Canadian. Um, and that was in the 2009-2010 season. Now, several weeks ago, Alou just came out and accused Peters of using a racial slur towards him uh, during practice, and that eventually led to an investigation by the Flames organization and NHL, and then eventually Bill Peters resigned from the head coach of the Calgary Flames. Jeff Ward took over, uh, who is qualified. Uh, You're familiar with him as well. I think that's a pretty easy fit for the Flames right now. But what are your thoughts on... I guess the specifics of what Peter said to Alou and also what your thoughts are on this whole movement that's kind of taking place in national, the National Hockey League now in terms of crossing lines and borders with players and coaches. Racism will always cross the line. There's no middle ground with racism. Uh, with that, the only thing with me is all these years later is when it now comes out like that should have been something that should have been addressed that day. And Peter should have been gone then. But then it's like the more accusations start coming out about how he kicked the player on the bench. Uh, yeah. Michael Jordan. Yeah. They they said Rod Brindamore at Sarah while he was in Carolina. So like all these other things are coming out. And to me, it's like, was Peter's a closet psychopath like that we didn't (laughs) know about. And then it kind of just all comes out. Like the, the, do the wires cross? Like, obviously I'm sure once as he said that to Akeem Alou, he instantly regretted that. But at the same time, it should never get there. Like your players should have nothing to do with race. And for what they said was said was he came into the locker room at one point and told, uh, Akeem Alou to stop playing that N word shit talking about the music in the locker room. So that is way and beyond like that's ridiculous should have been gassed then and to me i just hate that as a player you think that you would then be reprimanded or something else that you now have to hold on to it for this long to then push it out like i feel like that's something that had to be dealt with right then and there yeah for me that's part of it like i know there are some people that say, oh, he waited 10 years. Why did he wait 10 years? And we both know from playing growing up, even not even coming close to playing professionally, that if you 
cause a little issue in terms of the coaches or coaching staff or athletic departments, you're not going to be around long and you're not going to be on that team very long or you're going to be treated like absolute dog shit by the coach. So now you increase the stakes when you go to professional hockey, especially in the AHL, NHL level. So I totally understand as a 20, young 20-something-year-old kid who is drafted in the second round, he's trying to make it to the league, that he wouldn't come out and go, that's unacceptable, and he goes to the GM, he goes behind a coach's back, or because that could backfire on him where the team stands by Peters where it says there was no proof of it, and then he gets shunned, blacklisted out of the league. So I can understand why he didn't say anything 10 years ago in terms of that. Um, I agree what you said entirely about I've never had a coach and I've played, especially where I grew up, I played with uh, black teammates before. I've never had a one single coach even have to identify that as part of what their identity was. So it's just kind of weird that a coach in the A would walk in and say that to him. The two things, because this whole thing with Peters and Alou and uh, the incident in Carolina when he kicked Jordan on a bench, it's so multi-tiered that we could probably do a whole 40 minutes on this thing. But the two aspects I want to touch on specifically, the first one is Alou had this reputation of being just a pain in a fucking ass and a problem, a problem child is what they called him ever since he was drafted. Drafted high, he kind of had that air about him. We saw it in Worcester with some guys who needed to get knocked down a few pegs. Um, there was the one story of how the team had this yearly rookie hazing thing where they would have the rookies or rookie sit on their road trip. They would put them up in like the storage compartment of the bus for like just a few minutes uh, and then they would let him out and everything else. Kind of like the rite of passage. And he refused to do it, which eventually led to that fight, which was broadcast on TSN everywhere when it happened 10 years ago between him and Steve Downey at practice. So that was the whole cause of that. So nobody liked him. So I'm sure that he probably rubbed the coaching staff the wrong way multiple times. There were issues between him and his teammates. So I think that was kind of the boiling point where Peter stopped respecting him as a player in his organization and more of just like this like arrogant little fuck that needs to get set straight. Again, no excuse for the language that he used, but there's some type of error that led to that. And the second part is how you said he had to wait 10 years to say something. For me, I understand the point of being kind of afraid for your place in the National Hockey League or place to get to the National Hockey League 10 years ago when you're just some 20-something-year-old kid. But the two things that stood out to me were he hasn't played professionally until the end of last season. 2018-2019 in ECHL, he played 14 games. Congratulations with the Orlando Solo Bears. Um, And then he hasn't signed a professional contract since. Now he feels okay coming out about it, even though he's still only 30 years old. And he signed with the law office that is representing Colin Kaepernick against the NFL. So right there, and I feel like this, it could be true of both things. What Peter said was wrong. He should have gotten his ass canned 10 years ago. But also the timing of it and the steps he's taken. And it's like, did he see what happened with Kaepernick and how he got a big-ass payout from the National Football League for what happened? And he's like, well, I have no offers. I'm still 30 years old. I have no idea what I want to do with the rest of my life. I didn't go to college. Here's a chance for me here. You get either some retribution, some payback, and also maybe shake a little money out of the National Hockey League. I know that's a little pessimistic, but that's, as soon as I read that news story about him and Kaepernick's lawyers, I rolled my eyes. God, I hope that's not what it is. Like, If you're going to tarnish someone's reputation off of just to get a big payout, like that's crazy. So I, I hope and I pray that's not the case. But at the same time, it very well could be Talk about one other person who had a huge part in this and Brad Treveling as to decide whether to keep Peters or gas Peters like for something that happened 10 years ago before he probably even knew him. So that's like rocking a hard place of a you never want to see that with any of your employees. But B, now you're going off of allegations of 10 years ago. 
and now you have guys in the room and it's like is this gonna affect our room regardless just I know we talked about it before. Like, is this now the NHL like Me Too movement where everyone's now gonna be hurt? Uh, yeah, like I don't know. It, it just seems like it's a very hard time and place to be in that Calgary room because now after your coach gets gassed, whether you liked Peters or not, it, like Jeff Ward's your rallying point here and. Jeff Ward more than qualified. He's been an assistant in the NHL now for years. He was one of the assistants when the Bruins won the Stanley Cup here. I have very high regards for Jeff Ward. At the same time, I feel like he has a very difficult job now in bringing this team that should be at very near the top of the Pacific Division, who is struggling right now, to now come around and perform. So I, I think he has his hands full on that end. And so my question to you before we move on to the Crawford uh, portion is, I think it was a lot easier for Trevelling and the Flames to kind of part ways. I know they let Peters resign uh, instead of just firing him because they were have been struggling this year. If this came out last year when the Flames were running away with the Pacific Division at the top of the Western Conference standings, Peters' first year, and this came out at the same time last year. Do you think they would have shown him the doors easily? Now or we're talking. Because they're no, struggling. I, I don't think they would have. I, I agree. I think it's because they're struggling, and, you know, it's a bad look for the organization, absolutely. But now because they're struggling, who knows what they went with on the other side with the resignation factor. Maybe they said, you know, we'll just pay you through the rest of this year so you'll still be compensated. I don't know any of that for sure. I'm just trying to think as to who, what, where, when, why. But yeah. now it's, no, I don't think they would have gassed him last year. But now I don't think he's ever going to get another NHL coaching job again, not even as being an assistant. I think he's he's done. I don't oh, think no, anyone's taken that on. Yeah, he's done, um, which sucks. But also it sucks that he said that 10 years ago. So, like, it's yeah, it's so multifaceted. It sucks that he did it. It's stupid that he did it. But his livelihood for the rest of his career probably uh, because of what he did. So I mean, it's a deserved firing. It just sucks all around. Um, I guess we can move on to the Crawford situation. Mark Crawford, who is an assistant with the Blackhawks now, has been suspended indefinitely by the team after allegations came out that. He physically abused players when he was the head coach in Los Angeles. Um, at least that's the only part that's come out so far. Sean Avery accused him of it when he was he wrote an article for the New York Post. I know Patrick O'Sullivan, who was a quote-unquote bust of a draft pick for the Kings organization, wrote a book several years ago and said this. Nobody took notice. And so he came back out and said, anytime you guys want to talk to me, let me know. Um, I'm sure there's going to be other instances that come out I know we talked about the verbal side of it in terms of what crosses a line. And it's not the same as a nine to five workplace. I've seen a lot of people, especially on Twitter go, this isn't acceptable in a real world. Why would it be acceptable in coaching? Because it's not the real world. It's a different angle. Like coaches are going to ride you. They're going to ride your ass. They're going to light you up. It's different. Would you ever accept a coach kicking you in the ass or like physically touching you? outside of like pulling you to not get on for a line change ever if i was sitting on the bench and i i did something like something like as a professional you would think if you if you made an awful turnover or something like that that you would already know this like you wouldn't need, need to be reminded of it so if i went to the bench and i'm sitting there and i'm already kind of jacked up about it and a coach gives me a kick on the ass and says, Hey, you know, that's last shift onto your next one. I think it all depends on the way that it's done. If oh I'm, yeah. Yeah. So if I'm sitting there, he gives me a kick, Hey, you know, get over it, work on your next shift. All right. I'm now trying to transition mentally. If I'm there and someone winds up and kicks me and tells me I'm a piece of shit and goes up and down, <laughs> like we're probably going to have some problems. I'm not yeah. going to lie about that. So to me, it's just weird because I listened to Spit and Chicklets this week. It was the Chris Chelios episode. 
and he was discussing how with Mike Keenan, the mind games were insane. And he said one time he went into Keenan's office, completely tears it apart, and he throws his stick into the ceiling so Keenan could see that it said Chelios on the stick so he knew who did it. He said the next day they came into work together, it was yesterday. So it was now a new day, and it was good. He said there was no issues. They never even talked about it. So... Keenan probably loved it, to be honest. I know, but he was like, he's like sick. He's like a freak, like an individual, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but like now with this other stuff, like physical abuse, especially for someone like Sean Avery, who was a nut job, like I'm surprised there wasn't an altercation. Yeah. So to me, it's like, is it real? Is it fake? I don't know. Uh, like obviously Patrick O'Sullivan had a lot of other issues. He had actual physical abuse while he was younger against him. Yeah. So it's like, I honestly don't know what to believe. Mark Crawford has been around for a long time, but yet again, I mean, look at Bill Peters. So is he. So maybe stuff is just finally starting to surface on guys, but I just wish when things happen, they would then be brought to attention. Like I just hate the years in between factor. Like to me, it's like it takes away the truth. I mean, we could have been there 10 years ago, but my story could differ a little bit from yours. So it's like, I I just don't know. It's, I hate that people wait this long. And for someone like Sean Avery, who talked about sloppy seconds and all sorts of other shit throughout the NHL that he would hold his mouth on this till now. Yeah. I mean, I'm giving Avery and Sully the benefit of the doubt here just because what is it? What does Avery gain from saying that in the personalized op-ed in the New York Post in New York City? He doesn't gain anything from it except for being in the crosshairs of something that's going on now. And he, I know what his reputation is when he played, but as someone who still follows him, he's not an attention whore. I'm telling you. So well, he's the bike, think, the bike cop of NYC. He just protects I know, the I, people. I love, hey, buddy, get out of the <laughs> fucking bike lane. Um. So, like, I take their word on it just because if it, it would be a little different if Sullivan, O'Sullivan didn't say it several years ago. And now it's corroborated. Um, and I think it's just a matter of two things. One, it's different. It's a different era now with these players than it was even 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So when you have coaches that are still around that are kind of stuck in that in-between from the old school days, like Crawford to now where you have coaches like Cassidy or Quinn who you if I ever heard Quinn say anything remotely close to what Bill Peters said I would be floored so like you have these new wave of coaches that are more player friendly who are still disciplinarians but in different ways so I think that's one angle of it where now it's starting to come out now because a lot of these younger guys like yo what the fuck is this shit like I ain't putting up with it and the second thing is, I have a severe disregard for anybody in power that the only reason why they're in power or they remind you they're in power is because they have to remind you of it. So for Crawford or Peter, is there any other coach, even an assistant coach, to be able to get away with something that they know if there wasn't that power dynamic of I'm in control of your career right now? that they would get their ass handed to him. I have no respect for him. Because if Crawford kicked Avery, and Avery said it, he kicked him so hard, I left a mark. It wasn't like one of those, hey, get your head out of your ass, which happens all the time in pretty much every sport. Like, that's not the problem here. He kicked him so hard, he left a mark. That if that happened, if Crawford did that to Avery at a bar in Los Angeles, Crawford would have gotten his ass shoved up his ass, head shoved up his ass. So that's what I have this severe hatred of where Crawford knows he can get away with it because he has that power imbalance. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I don't want to use the, oh, it's the hockey Me Too because of what the Me Too movement kind of entails. But I think there is going to be a little bit of a reckoning here when it comes to coaches that are old school that are still around, or even if they're not even coaching, just players coming out now saying, yeah, this happened with this coach and this coach. And it was bullshit, and everybody kind of rearranging the 
power dynamic in the coaching ranks in the league. I do think that'll definitely happen, that the coaching merry-go-round will be fired up because one other person now that all these other allegations came up against is Mike Babcock. Like, does he find another job in this league? Cause Chelios came out about him. The Maple Leafs came out about him. Like he might be going to Russia just cause they would love that over there. But here it's like, it's, it's a different type of player now. Yeah. But one other thing is you, you hit it right on the head when you said the old school versus the new school, because Old school players and old school coaches, they would tell you a story. Oh, yeah, and I remember so-and-so broke a stick and bow. And, like, they would kind of laugh about they it. They laugh about it now. But now it's just that different mentality. And obviously it's people, it's scenarios, it's different situations. But I don't want to say do you find it funny, but, like, do you just find it funny in the sense that the old school kind of expected this, but now the new school, it's now completely unacceptable. Yeah. It's kind of, I guess, ironic. And for the old school coaches that are still around, it kind of stuck in a hard place because like, wait, this was never a problem. And now it's a major problem. I'm going to lose my career and my reputation over it. So I understand that point of view. I think we were, we were brought up kind of on the, edge of that old school way where we respect some of those coaching methods we understand some of like the motivational factors and mind games that coaches play but neither one of us would have put up with some of that shit that we've heard from the old days so i think we're kind of a blend of the two um but the other thing that you mentioned chelios again i love how babcock benched him in like the uh old timers winter classic game a few years back when they were coaching, he was coaching the Red Wings, like old timers. Uh, no, it was the actual game at Wrigley. That oh, it's that far back. Okay. Yeah. He, he dressed seven D and he only played Chelios <laughs> the first shift. And the, the best part is Chelios saying that he was just there and his kids were close by and he, he motioned to get me beer. He said he drank the whole winter classic. I think that's awesome. <laughs> I thought he was talking about like how they have the old school guys come out the day before and play and Babcock was coaching. That would have been even. That would have been even better. <laughs> like, like I'm not even playing in the, you in the alumni game. You're out. What transpired? Yeah, we're gonna see what happens here with Crawford. I doubt he doesn't get the axe here. Um, we'll see if any other coaches come to the crosshairs when it comes to stuff like this. But one coach that did get fired and let go because of on the ice stuff was John Hines with the New Jersey Devils. He was fired on Tuesday which no one that pays attention to the National Hockey League is surprised by. Uh, I was at the game in New Jersey where the Rangers dominated them for three periods and won 4 nothing, scored two shorthanded goals. The arena was chanting, fire Hines. Ranger fans are chanting, Taylor's leaving. And then the very next game, he goes up to Buffalo and gets his ass handed to him in a 7-1 loss, and then he gets his walking papers. So... I know you predicted that Hines would be the first coach fired this year. He's the third. Um, I'm going to give it an asterisk because Peters was fired for non-hockey-related issues. So you're pretty close on that one. What Did you think what was going to happen in the offseason that would lead to his firing led to his firing, or is it something that completely came out of nowhere? The thing for me that I thought was he finally now had a team with talent around him. Like this team was built to win. I, I thought so. I thought they were drastically improved roster wise from last year. And I thought that they were actually going to come in and make a big splash in that metropolitan division. Didn't end up happening. And the worst part was it just didn't seem like they could ever write the ship. Just period. They, yep. they, they'd have a bad game. You think they'd have a bounce back. Nope. Another shitter. And it's like, when is the tide going to change here? And unfortunate because it took them a while to fire Hines. And I do think John Hines is a very good coach. Uh, he got that job because he was a very good coach because no one saw or predicted him getting that head coaching job when he did. So I think he will land on his feet somewhere. I don't think it'll be in the NHL. Maybe he'll get another college coaching job. Maybe after that, he might come back up in un unfortunate but at the same time, it's like, question for you. Who do you blame here, the coaches or the players? Because, I mean, 
that lineup's ready to win, no? I mean, I thought so. Uh, see, that's that's kind of difficult for me to answer because when we were doing our off-season reviews and stuff, I said I was not a fan of the Subban trade because I thought he was is vastly overrated and they're paying him and going to play him like he was 26 years old and a number one pair right-hand shot defenseman, and he's not that anymore. And this year, he is proving that once again after a down year in Nashville last year. And also the goaltending. Schneider cratered. Blackwood is not remotely close to being the answer in goal. They have nothing going on there. So this case, I got this from The Athletic after Hines was fired. The Devils allowed almost 29 goals more than expected in all situations this year in 27 games. That means that's over one goal loss per game, which basically means with the team's goalies in that they're starting down one nothing every game. Of the 332 team seasons since 2007, only 12 teams have allowed more than half a goal above expected over a full year, with Tampa Bay being minus 64, being the worst. So he was put into a hard spot because once that the goaltending, Blackwood didn't develop and Schneider didn't have a rebound, there was no way this team was going to be able to pull any consistent play out of it. So I think the goaltending situation did him in. I think uh, Ray Shero bringing in Subban and some of these other guys like Simmons that are past their prime, they're overrated. They're basically name recognition at this point. But also just being there at that game last Saturday, they checked out on him. There was no fight. There was no purpose to their shifts. There was no discernible difference from one period to the next in terms of adjustment adjustments or even trying to adjust. So I think by the time he got fired, the team was ready to see him go, but I'm not going to put all the blame on him, on him. I think some of it's on Ray Shero and some of it's on a, a lot of it's on a goaltending. All right, so now my next question would be, from what you saw, you could see that they gave up on him. Do you think there's more of a whole issue in general just in the locker room? I mean, now to our next topic, Ray Shero's come out and he said that Taylor Hall's on the market. They don't think he's re-signing there. They're going to ship him out. So maybe it's just an internal thing. How do you want to go to work knowing that you don't know when your last day is? And who's the leader on his team? Like, I know Subban is Mr. Popularity, but I know Andy Green's, like, he's fine. Like, I don't I don't think neither of us would be able to spot Andy Green walking down the street past us, and we have a hockey podcast. Uh, you're not going to get leadership out, out of Taylor Hall. Like, who in that locker room is going to be the guy that galvanizes his team, especially after a coach is fired, that says, guys, we, still have, we might still have enough time to turn this shit around. I don't see that happening. So I think there is an issue in a room of there's just not a clear voice and a clear leadership group that a lot of good teams have, especially in like a place like Pittsburgh, who's dealt with a significant amount of injuries this year, yet they still are in playoff contention. They're still playing well because... They have that core group in place, and Sullivan's a leader as a head coach. So when it comes to Hall, I mean, he's gone. He's a free agent at the end of the year. It's just a matter of when do they ship him and where does he get traded to. And do you think he's going to be worth the contract he's going to get over the summer? I've heard rumors of a couple of different places. One place I did hear was Colorado. And could you imagine putting him in that lineup McKinnon, Rantanen, Landeskog, Hall, Yost, Kale McCarr on the back end, Gerard, like that would make them stacked. I mean, they have the cap space for them. Yep. The only other thing is return wise, don't know what Ray Sherrill would want. Obviously, you're going to have to go a first. You're going to have to possibly do another first if you sign them to an extension. You're probably going to have to give up a good portion of the prospect pool maybe a player or two, but I know that Colorado likes their roster, so I don't know if they would give up anybody on the playing roster. So interesting to see. I also heard one just with the struggles that are going on right now. Obviously, I think an extension would have to be guaranteed just with Hall being a UFA, but I heard a Goudreau for Hall straight up, one for one. Another one for one with Hall. <laughs> yeah, hey, I mean that one doesn't seem as bad though. That, that's that's pretty decent compared to the other one. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the thing. When you talk about, let's say, Hall gets dealt to Colorado, I think that's a great fit for everybody involved because Hall's not going to be someone that's going to be the leader of your forward group. He's not a franchise guy. Despite the hard season, despite his draft status, despite some of his production, I've never been, a, like, he plays in my division. I could probably name, like, 10 guys I'm more scared of in my division than Taylor Hall when they play the Rangers. And that's somebody that, if you're going to get traded to Colorado, he slides right in on that second line. You can play him with Kadri. Perfect. But when it comes to his free agent production and his expected contract, he wants $10 million a year. I'm not even coming close to paying him that money. So whatever team signs him, they're going to get a quality first-line guy who's going to decline into a second-line guy who doesn't play two-way hockey. He's not a very skilled guy. He's more of a north-south player. And once you start getting older, he's going to lose that speed. So what's the risk of a long-term contract? In terms of the deadline, I know there's been rumors about Colorado, but I said this at the game on Saturday uh, to my friend Eric. I think he's going to go to Montreal. And I think that's why the Canadians called up uh, Keaton and Primo, because the Devils need a goaltender. Blackwood's not the answer. I know they might have a prospect or two that they might want to give some time to to see if they're the answer there, but if you're trading Terrell Hall, the centerpiece in terms of the prospects and either come back has to be a future potential number one goaltender. And I think that's why all of a sudden out of nowhere, Primo's called up and he's going to start getting some spot starts with the Canadians just to see if he can increase his value a little bit after having a solid start to his career in the A. He's still 20 years old, 9-10 save percentage uh, in AHL this year, 258 goals against average. So I think that's why I got called up, because Montreal is discussing Hall with Shiro. But we'll see. I don't know what Colorado's prospect system is in terms of goaltending. I know they're set with Grubauer, so maybe they can shred somebody there. I know that I saw Primo playing at Northeastern while he was there, and the kid's a stud. Like, he, he's a player. Um, Going on the other end. Son of Keith Primo. Son of Keith. Uh, one thing th- that's very interesting, like you said, is Obviously, there would have to be more parts put in there, but salary-wise, they're both basically on that same path. Yet again, I know Montreal's not going to ship off Carey Price without an extension already ready to go for Taylor Hall. But I think that would be wild because Hall goes up there and he goes and he could play with Domi and um, Gallagher up there. Who, who knows what could happen? Maybe a little lightning in a bottle? Yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing. And everybody was kind of questioning Montreal's offseason and some of the moves they've been making for salary cap purposes around the margins. But they have the cap space, they have the draft picks, because you're going to have to give up a first and some prospects for an Taylor Hall trade and probably somebody off your NHL roster. So just trying to put together a hypothetical trade for Montreal that's not going to screw them over for the rest of the year or in the short term would you trade in Nick Cousins? Nick Cousins a first and primo for Terrell Hall and with no guarantee of him signing? If there's no guarantee of him signing, no, I'm not doing it. Well, uh, that's, that's the thing. You're, the G- you're a GM of a team right now. What is your short-term and long-term outlook on who Terrell Hall is in terms of how he fits into your organization as a player. Is he a franchise guy to you, or is he just like a really, really good secondary guy? Well, Taylor Hall came out, it was a couple of years ago now, when he ended up going to Jersey, where he even said the year he got drafted that he hoped he went to Boston, just so he didn't have to deal with, the merry-go-round that was Edmonton where you're now the next number one overall pick and you, and you go into the, you know, into the fire with all the other ones and you're instantly going to get blamed. He said he wanted to go to Boston. He liked the leadership group and everything that was there. And he thought that going second would take a lot of the heat off. So maybe you're right. Maybe he's not your guy in the sense of the pressure being on. So maybe he wants to go somewhere where it's not going to be completely like that. I mean, 
Montreal's not that spot. Montreal's not that spot. On the other end, who would trade for him now? I don't know because the price is going to be high. Like he seems to me to he'll be more of a deadline guy just because if he's not going to agree to an extension, I don't think people are going to give up the farm for him. But I, I know as a GM, I wouldn't. If the deadline came along, I think we were close. I, I'd send a first rounder for him, but that's it. If he's not guaranteeing he's going to stay here, I'm not I'm not going to give you everything for a two-month rental. I'm not doing it. And so my thing is, I agree that he's probably looking for and is probably better off in a spot where it's not um, uh, like a huge spotlight on him wherever he goes because of his name and his pedigree. If he gets sold to Montreal and he signs long-term and he doesn't lift him anything and becomes the next match Pacioretty, we saw what happened there. But if you're looking for a team that isn't rebuilding, it's kind of like has enough pieces in place to be able to contend within the next one to two years, potentially. It's not in a big-time hockey market, so you're not going to get a lot of attention. And they have the cap space to give you the contract that you want. Aren't we talking about New Jersey? Yeah. Yeah. Like, He's already in the spot that we're trying to find a spot for him to go to. So if I'm Terrell Hall, and I've, I mean, this is all dependent on if he's enjoyed his time with the Devils organization, which I don't think he wouldn't have. I mean, I hate the Devils, but they're a good run organization. If I, I go to Cheryl and I get, train me, and then as long as we're close on money, I'll be back long term. And then he's right back to where he might want to be. He knows the organization. He doesn't have to start over again, learn a new city, learn new teammates, all this other stuff. And with the haul that you get, pun intended, with the haul that you get back in a Taylor Hall trade, combined with Jack Hughes is another year more experience, and Kahisha is another year more experience, Miles Wood, you hopefully solve the goaltending issue. The Devils should, would be a playoff team next year. So he's right in a spot where he would want to be. So that's the interesting part to me. I don't think he was gonna he's gonna sign long term, unless it's like Dallas somewhere if they have the cash space. I I thought of Dallas too. Just can, can you imagine a reunion of Hall and Sagan and Ben and all those guys coming together? That'd be pretty wild. Uh, wild offensively, no question. Yeah. So it's, yeah, that's another thing. It's are we in agreement? It's guaranteed it's gonna be traded. Yeah, he he will be moved by the end of the season. There's no question. Yeah, so we'll just see what happens. Which team he goes to? I think Colorado. I'd be pretty scary for every team out in the West to deal with. Um, but I think the more interesting part is when it comes to the summer. If he turns right back around and goes down to New Jersey Turnpike and goes back to the Devils, that'd be funny. Who who knows? Maybe he'll go down the Turnpike and go to Philly. Oh God. You get booed out of there quicker than Brzezgalov. <laughs> it's, um, it's where goalies go to die. <laughs> Why do we care so much? <laughs> um, but speaking of contract extensions, we have two good ones to talk about now. Your Bruins. I know we're going to do Bruins and Rangers Week in Review here, but part of it's going to be our thoughts on the Coyle and Wagner contract extensions. So take it away. Yes, I, I know we had spoken about it earlier, and we both had two different opinions. I I personally like the Charlie Coyle deal. Um, price that we saved compared to what he would get on the open market. I mean, I don't I don't think we saved too much money. Five and a quarter. He probably would have got a Marcus Johansson like deal on the open market. Probably about six. With that though, I like it just because. It doesn't put us in a bad spot. He's currently 27, so he would be out of this deal by the time he's 32 or 33, depending on when his birthday falls. With that, it doesn't put us in a David Backus situation where we're signing a guy at 30 and seeing if he'll hold up at 35, 36. To me, I like it because he's currently already in that third-line center spot. Patrice Bergeron has been hurt a lot. Charlie Coyle has been filling in a lot in that second-line center spot. David Krejci playing up. I think it just gives you a sense of security. You have a guy who's here who's very comfortable here. He can play center. He can play the wing. 
I like the signing, and like I said, it doesn't get him at an age that's too old where you don't think he will be useful or fall completely off the face of the earth. As for the Chris Wagner deal, I didn't mind that. He makes currently this year 1.25. He got a raise of hundred grand for the next three years after that 1.35. And for Wags, I mean, he's a guy. He's a PK guy. He's a fourth-line guy. He's a role player. Busts his hump every day. Comes to play defends his teammates, does what he's supposed to do, currently 28, so he'll be out of that by the time he's 31, 32. And for a guy that plays the way he does, I think that's about the time you'd want to step away anyways just from a year-to-year type deal because who knows if his body will hold up. So I think timing of it is perfect because you get out around the age of that that last year of the deal for both of them you could see if you want to sign them to a longer extension just because of they're at that age of where people start to decline. So I think it, they were both great deals. I, I know you had a difference in opinion, but th- that's where I stand on them. Yeah. For me, my two issues are completely separate for each extension. For I'll talk about the Wagner one because that's not much of a, as much of a big deal to me as the coil extension. For me, this is a perfectly acceptable contract if you're a team that is not up against the salary cap year in and year out and trying to find ways to save money in order to find, eventually, a second-line right-winger to play with Krejci and DeBrusque. The Bruins are perennial contenders. They're perennially up against the cap. And a fourth-line depth winger or depth center, whichever position he plays consistently... You, can, you should be able to get that for the league minimum by any rookie. And I know it's only $1.35 million or whatever the hell the, the AAV is, but for a team that's always looking to save some money, that didn't want to buy Bacchus out because of the salary cap situation, I feel like that's six seven hundred grand over that, than what you need to spend for the role that he provides on a team. If you're talking about a team like... New Jersey or Dallas or wherever, and they have cap space or they're not perennially up against the cap, eh, whatever. He's a fourth-line guy. It's not going to kill you. But I just think for a team like Boston, that's decision like like this add up, where you overpay a little bit for this guy because I'll pay for this guy just by a little bit because the fans love him. And then eventually, you need to sign a second-line winger, and you can't because you have $3 million worth of dead cap space for guys that are overpaid just a little bit. So that's my one issue with the Wagner thing. And I'll, I'll let you respond and kick my ass after I talk about the Coil one. Coil, for me, the cap hit is perfectly fine. I mean, he's a third-line guy at this point in his career who can sometimes sub in on a second line in short-term bursts and not embarrass himself and, and produce for the team like start the year with Krejci being out like everybody stepped in pretty well it's the length you're paying him till his he turns 33 34 years old you're basically paying a third quasi a quasi second line or more of a third line guy six years that's crazy to me and I know the cap hit is manageable manageable for this still slightly a bit on the high end for my liking but I just think six years is crazy to pay somebody who is never going to be on your first line, who is never going to be consistently on your second line unless he takes a step forward at age 28 to replace Krejci at some point. I just don't see what the long-term benefit is of having a 33-year-old Charlie Coyle on your third line, probably playing wing at that point, earning over $5 million a year. That Those were my two issues. I just think that going at it right now you have david krejci who only has on the books this year and next year until he's a ufa i think he'll end up becoming your 2c so i mean price wise for a second line center i don't think it's that bad the other thing is currently we've separated due to the patrice bergeron injury i was going to say issue the patrice bergeron injury (laughs) that pasternak and martian have both been separated now so pasta's with krejci and Marshan's with Coyle. And, I mean, they've both been clicking on each cylinder, both of them, Pasta and Marshan. So just the fact that whether it is 
a chemistry thing or whether Charlie just kind of has the same type of game of, as Berge or whatever it is that Marshan can go to him and feel comfortable in the goal that he scored the other night. I mean, Marshan comes behind the net from the corner, a beautiful tape-to-tape pass from behind the goal line right to Charlie Coyle right in front. I mean, obviously there's something going on there. I I just don't think it's as bad as you think. I, I'm thinking, yes, we do still need to find a second-line winger. I'm hoping that it'll be through the system on account of you've drafted some high guys here. You got uh, Jack Stadnika, you got Frederick, you have Jacob Locko, who it's his first year over, well, coming over from junior, he had a great year last year. They also have the uh, first round draft pick this year. Like, I just think that there's different ways to fill that hole. And to me, the stability factor and just security makes it a lot safer because I mean me and you can both agree that we have no idea what's going on with Patrice Bergeron's groin and mm-hmm. whether this is going to be a week to week a month to month or you know we'll see him in the playoffs type deal and I think that's all it is for them is a security thing because this now seems to be an issue every year so if Bergeron does go end up going down long term you at least have him locked up and he can definitely slide into that spot for you yeah, I mean, let's say Bergeron is able to be, be healthy cons- fairly consistently for the Bruins moving forward to the end of his contract here, and Krejci's contract ends after the 2021 season. Are you really that comfortable for a team that year in and year out wants to win a Stanley Cup as Charlie Coyle as your stuck-in-cement second-line center? I'm, I'm not there quite yet. And then they also... The other factor is, once this extension kicks in, I know you're in this situation, you're probably knocking Krejci's $7 million cap hit off the books at, uh, in the next two years, so that's fine. But during this extension, you're going to have to sign Pasternak to a long-term deal. You're going to have to sign, uh, I know you don't like him, but Danton Heinen is going to need an extension. Corrales is going to be a free agent. You're going to have to sign Jake DeBrusque to a long-term deal. You're going to sign Charlie McAvoy and Brandon Carlo to long-term deals. Tory Krug is a free agent. Like All of a sudden, a lot of that potential cast base is now gone. You have two million, If you swap out Krejci for Coyle, that leaves you $2 million. I was having this discussion today. There's a couple of things that Don Sweeney needs to take care of and he needs to figure it out rather quickly. Uh, a huge part of our team this year and last year, Yaroslav Halak, last year of his deal at 2.75. Do you bring him back again next year? I mean, for the way he, the, the way he's played for you, I hope so. But then you look at the decor, and then there's Kevin Miller, who at the end of this year is a UFA. He's okay to go. He's okay to go. I got no problem with that. But you look at some of the other deals where you have John Moore on there for 2.75. Like, yep. That's one you have to worry about. You look at the defense, and this was a conversation I had earlier about with Mainzi. Tory Krug's UFA at the end of the year. If you're not able to get an extension with him, you have to worry about a couple of things. If he's gone, that's five and a half off the books. If Zidane Chara doesn't come back, that's another two off the books. If you're able to sign Tory Krug, and I hate to say this because I love this guy as a player, Matt Grizzlick is your biggest trade chip. Yeah. And that would be something you would have to push out there to hopefully get. I mean, he's restricted at the end of this year, so he's due for another deal too. So, yeah, I mean, there are some things that you have to wiggle, but at the same time, you have so many younger guys in the system that I feel like you can push some of the other guys out and just get people on entry levels that it doesn't hurt you as bad. My question, and just kind of wrap this portion up uh, before we get into your full review. If you know you're not going to be able to sign a crew to an extension and he's leaving as a free agent, do you still ride or die with him and try and win a cup, or do you trade him at the deadline for something? Yet again, a conversation I had earlier. Yeah, you you ride or die with him. I think I agree. He, I agree. he makes you that much better. and the cup lasts forever. The cup lasts forever. So that'll bring you to the promise. I mean, 
Remember, we traded a first-round draft pick away for Tomas Caballé, who did absolutely nothing for us during that playoff run. Yep. Nothing. But we won the Cup, so who cares? And yep. I feel like that would be the same thing with Tori Krug. All right. I just wanted to get you, check your pulse on that one. But, um, yeah, go ahead. Finish your week in review, and then I'll do a very brief Rangers one because same shit, different day. <laughs> well, uh, went to the game on Black Friday. Uh, saw your Rangers play. Bruins currently on a eight-game win streak, uh, currently playing the Blackhawks right now. I have not seen the game yet. I'm just kind of trying to get through this. We're recording a little bit earlier, so I will be able to watch the rest of it. Um, the boys look good. Uh, I'm just really happy that even through with the Bergeron injury that guys like Pasta have not slowed down, and th- there's a very good chance he's going to score 50 and 50, which is insanity. He is just you see him at certain times with the puck and it doesn't matter what he's doing. The puck's just going in the net, just winding up, teeing off and he's finding a hole. So pucks are finding holes for him. Uh, one thing with your Rangers that I saw was in your own end, you guys are absolutely atrocious. I know, but (laughs) coming up with the puck, there is definitely some offense there. And yep, it was scary. Me and Phil are watching the game, and we're watching your power play set up. And I see number ten out there drifting, and I'm like, oh, "Yeah, he does cover. that a lot." And I'm like, "Cover Panarin, cover Panarin." Like <laughs> he he's just like coming around that top of the umbrella, finding the weak spot, and it's like, "Do not let that puck go cross ice to him. Do not let him go there because it's like it, it's scary." And the only one thing I would say about the Bruins, just in general, is the slow starts like the other night against Carolina it seemed like they came out okay at first Carolina then kind of held the pace for a while kind of giving it to us and then last five minutes of the game I think the Bruins just decided oh we're going to turn it on now and now we're going to play and then just like you can see when they're actually playing because they blow the other teams away like once they turned it on that last five minutes against Carolina Carolina didn't stand a chance it was just crazy to see that you could be that much better than another team so I just don't want them to be comfortable in the sense of they can do that every game like ah, we'll just hold off and then at the end we'll turn it on and then we'll win like I I've said this every week now for the past three weeks I want them to play a full consistent 60 minutes because even in the game I was at the one I saw with your Rangers we didn't play a 60 minute game You, you guys gave it to us a little bit in that first period and then part of the second before the Bruins finally turned it on in the third. So I just think they need a full, full 60 minute effort all the time. And then they could really show as to how dominant they are in this league. Yeah. And I mean, it was nice that the Rangers and Bruins played because that's a nice segue into the Rangers side of things. I texted you right after the game ended that, game was the difference between a team like the Bruins that's having another chance once again to win a Stanley Cup and a team like the Rangers. The Ranger first period was we, you guys took it to us early. We withstood that. We turned it around late in the first. I felt like we pretty much dominated the majority of the second period, which I know has been an Achilles heel for you guys. Mm-hmm. I feel like forever. Um at one point, you guys only had 11 shots on goal with like three or four minutes left in the second period. But we couldn't capitalize any more than what we did. And then the, we, Smith fought McAvoy. I mean, Smith gave it to him. Um, but that kind of turned the boys around. And the third period, you guys took it to us and we couldn't close. Um, and you saw the issues that we had defensively. It's like I've been saying all year long in these reviews. I don't know what the defensive structure is for the Rangers. I don't know what the transition game is for the Rangers. Offensively, I think we're fine. We have pretty good power plays set up for the most part, even though sometimes we put four right-handed shots on the same unit. But defensively, it's either hot potato with the puck along the boards and hoping to get it out, or if it's a rush or outnumbered down low, you see Rangers defensemen drop down to a knee or they go do the snowman shit. Brady Shea is the worst at this on the team currently. Dangerous syndrome. But there's no rhyme or reason to what they do. And I think there's a reason why, and I discussed this at the game on Saturday at the Devils-Rangers game, there's a reason why defenders look bad playing for the Rangers these last few years and then they leave and they play better 
and then defensemen that played better elsewhere come here and they look like shit. Like, it's the system that we play, and the only constant since Elaine Vigneault to David Quinn has been Lindy Ruff, and he's in charge of defense and penalty kill, and the penalty kill up until a recent hot streak was 23rd in the league. He's not doing his job, and I think that's hurting a lot of our guys, especially young guys like Libor Hayek, who is getting his ass handed to him these last few weeks. And he's still 21 years old, so he's not a bust or anything, but he might benefit from some time going down to Hartford and just getting his confidence back and coming back up. But you saw it firsthand. That's been my frustration all year. I don't know what they're doing. One game, they looked dominant defensively because they're using the sidewall for a three-man breakout. The next game, they don't do that, and they're trying to skate it through the entire defensive and neutral zones and getting taken back, leading non-man rushes. So it, that's part of the inconsistency that I'm constantly harping on. Um, but yeah, they turn around the very next day. They dominate the Devils, which at this point hasn't been difficult to do up until the firing of John Hines. Then they get dominated by the Vegas Golden Knights at home uh, on Monday. They're playing the Blue Jackets now tonight in Columbus, but those three games right there. Play well, but choke it away. Dominate, and then get dominated. It's the Rangers all year long, the inconsistencies. And besides the Hayek observation in terms of he's struggling a little bit, maybe stalls healthy, maybe slide stall back into the starting six and give Hayek a little bit of a breather. Um, I don't know what's going on because um, Kreider... He hasn't been playing like his typical self, typical self all year, and I don't know if it's because he has what Matthew Grello was going through, where he knows he's going to get traded and it's kind of bumming him out and it's taking his head out of the game, or if he knows that he's a free agent at the end of the year and he doesn't want to get hurt, so he's not playing his north-south power game like he once used to. But I know all summer I was talking about the Rangers need to sign Crowder to an extension. I don't want them to sign this Crowder to an extension. Like, shit, at this point, get what you can for him. Like, what what can't Kravtsov do that Kreider's doing right now for this team? Because Kreider's not playing like he typically does. So I think he's either checked out or he's just not finding his groove in this uh, top six because I know he's getting kind of shoved around left wing, right wing, first line, second line. So my fervor for having Kreider re-signed to an extension has kind of dwindled a little bit. But yeah, other than that, the goaltending is the only... Goaltending, Nika Zibanejad, Artemi Panarin, and I'd say Adam Fox right now, the only reasons why the Rangers aren't getting embarrassed on a nightly basis. So we'll see what happens in terms of continued development. But yeah, you saw it firsthand. Now you don't understand my frustration. Tell you what, though, we did see firsthand that Fox is a stud. Fox is incredible, man. I love this kid. Just uh, me and Phil just watched him quarterback that power play, and I was like, "Wow!" Like, <laughs> I, I I just don't think people understand at the same time as to at least me in the Northeast, in being in Massachusetts and in Boston, that we have incredible players right in our backyard with the hockey East. Like, yep, you go to BU, go to BC, you go to Northeastern, you go like then you go to Harvard, like. You, you can UMass. go UMass. You can go to Stratty's Stratty's House of Horrors, um, but no, like you can go relatively close and see really good hockey players before they make it big. And like some of them, you can already tell. And Fox, I mean, we could we knew last year. Never mind this year. So I mean, that's why the Bean Pot is always fun to go to. I love the Bean Pot. Bean Pot's my favorite. But yeah, I mean, Fox has been a stud. There, he's not putting up. He's getting pretty hot now in terms of actual point production, but even when he wasn't scoring points, you can just tell he has his veteran demeanor about himself. He is very calm at the blue line. He's calm defensively. He's great. And this is one of my favorite things about Fox and about any defenseman, that they can go into the corner or they can go behind the net and they can be facing pressure from four checkers and they don't shit themselves. He just takes the puck he uses his hockey sense and gets the puck out of danger by carrying it with him, possessing the puck, and then making the perfect uh, headman pass. Does it on a nightly basis. And I'm excited to see what happens when his 
he gets consistent offense production because I know everybody was saying, oh, he's kind of small. Uh, who knows if he's going to be a franchise guy? He's definitely not a franchise guy on the level of like Victor Hedman or Duncan Keith or any of those guys. But he's a first pair defenseman. Yeah, I mean, he's 23 years old right now as a rookie. So I'm excited to see what happens next year and a year after that in terms of his development because we could have Truva and Fox and D'Angelo on the right side for the next six, seven years and be set on that side. So very excited about Fox. I, I know you know a little bit about wrestling too, but I call, gave him Triple H's nickname, the Cerebral Assassin, because he's such a good thinker and has such strong hockey sense. I did not know that that was Triple H's nickname, the Cerebral, yeah, Cerebral Assassin. Cerebral Assassin, baby. Wow. So Triple H out the window, just the, the CA now. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm glad you guys got to see that in person. I saw it in Newark against the Devils. Him and Lindgren, I know you guys are familiar with him too, former Bruins prospect. They uh, pretty much have been our number one pair for like the last month. I was going to say, Lindgren looked phenomenal in that New Jersey game. Just like his yep. stick on puck and just directing things certain ways. He looked incredible. And he kept going at it with Simmons, so he brings an edge, along with D'Angelo and Truba, but he brings an edge that's been missing from the Rangers' defense, defensive core for the last few years. Um, he's not going to put up many points. He's not going to carry the puck up through the offensive zone very often, but a pairing with him and Fox has been our number one pair in terms of play and not in terms of salary for like three or four weeks now, and they've been playing against some of the top guys in the league, and they've been holding their own. So very excited about our future on defense. All right. Do we have some uh, hockey history today? We do have some hockey history today. And I, the first one I wanted to point out, I want your reaction to how crazy this is because it's, a, it's kind of a two-pointer. Uh, but for December 5th in 1986, Wayne Gretzky becomes the fifth player in NHL history with 1,400 points. He, at 25 years old, he reaches 1,400 points in 580 games faster than anybody else in hockey history. The milestone comes nine months to the day after he gets point number 1,300 against the Kings. So he gets 1,400 points in game number 580. Do you know he, do you know he only needed 40 more games before getting another 100 points? Only 40, wow. <laughs> to get to 1,500, like at 25 years old. So I saw that, I was like, Jesus Christ, I wish I grew up understanding what was going on when he was playing. It's crazy uh, when um, you think about like the stats and as to how good it was, and this isn't the clutch and grab days, not like the obstruction hooking and all that bullshit. Yep. Um, and the last one I got for today is our good friend, well, at least for the Ranger fans, in 2001, Iron Mike Keenan becomes the second man in NHL history to coach seven different teams when the Florida Panthers defeat the Columbus Blue Jackets 2-0 in his first game as their head coach. I know we mentioned him earlier in the podcast because of his reputation, but he will always have a very special place in my heart for 1994. Iron Mike. Iron Mike, baby. Who do you have for shoutouts? Uh... Who do I have for shoutouts this week? Uh, Mother Nature. I'm going to give you a shout down. <laughs> I had to work a lot this week, and I'm not going to lie. I'm tired. I'm beat up. Uh, big shout out to Big Red. I know she had a very uh, busy week at work with all the surveyors coming in and checking out the hospital, making sure that uh, everything was up to snuff. But I know that my darling takes care of her work. So, yeah, straight rider. No problem there. And um, a big shout-out to the First Lady for uh, finally being back home. Yeah. Um, I'll give her that sh same shout-out, too. Uh, she was gone six days in Mexico City. She had fun, but very happy that she's back, especially now that it's cold out. Um, still some of that body heat. Um, also, I'll give a shout-out to uh, Greggy, who is our mutual friend from our Worcester Sharks days. Uh, we worked with him there. He works... For the Devils organization now, he was able to hook me and my friend Eric up with tickets to the Rangers Devils game this past Saturday in Newark. Uh, he actually ended up getting us a suite. Uh, I was going to say, sweet life. I saw the pictures. I was like, wow. Yeah, it was awesome seat. I didn't have to worry about any riffraff with those Devils fans up in the uh, nosebleeds. So very, very excited, excited about that situation. You're just mad Carbone was looking for you. He's going to kick your ass. <laughs> He's going to break my collarbone again? <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, so once again, much appreciated uh, for the hookup this past Saturday. Um, and yeah, I'm just going to end it on that note because I was not expecting to get hooked up by Greggy after he got a little upset about me crapping on devil's attendance issues. But Prudential Center is no joke, man. It's pretty good. Well, yes, it's a fairly new building, Ben. It's a very nice building. Uh, it's 2007, you know, MSG has been renovated since then. So it's not as new as, you know, MSG. <laughs> um, everybody, as always, thank you for listening. We apologize for the delay this week. There was a whole bunch of obstacles that all of us had to jump through. But um, I don't know about you guys, but at least for me... There's always a reason behind why we drink. Mine was definitely work this week and all the plowable snow. Justin Moore, take it away with why we drink. We will catch all you guys next week. Have a good one. Cause